0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Allison Lee, one of the co-hosts of the channel and assistant professor of art history at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Today, I'm excited to be interviewing Emelyn Butterfield-Rosen about her new book, Modern Art and the Remaking of Human Disposition, which was published by the University of Chicago Press in November of 2021. Dr. Butterfield-Rosen is Associate Director of the Williams Graduate Program in the History of Art at the Clark Art Institute. She specializes in modern European art and cultural history and she frequently investigates the intersection between the history of art and the histories of biology, psychology and sexuality. She regularly writes long-form reviews of exhibitions for magazines like Art Forum, and her research has been supported by fellowships from the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Center for Advanced Study in the Visual Arts at the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. The book she wrote that we'll be discussing today, her first, is called Modern Art and the Remaking of Human Disposition. And it analyzes a previously unexamined formal phenomenon which took place within European modernism at the turn of the century. Dr. Butterfield Rosen argues that in the decades around 1900, many artists began to present human figures in strictly frontal, lateral and dorsal postures, breaking with the centuries-old tradition of rendering bodies in torsion. This formal departure destabilized prevailing visual codes for signifying the existence of the inner life of the human subject. Exploring major works by Georges Seurat, Gustav Klimt, and the dancer and choreographer Václav Nijinsky, the book combines close formal analysis with inquiries into scientific, psychological, and philosophical literature to show how modern understandings of human consciousness were materialized in art through a new vocabulary of postures and poses. I'm really thrilled to get to discuss this book with its author today, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Emmelyn Butterfield-Rosen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Allison. I'm Absolutely.
2: delighted to talk. Oh, with
1: you. good, good, good. I, I haven't done one of these in quite a number of months. So I feel like this is a great first foray for back into doing these interviews. And, and I enjoyed reading this book and we have tons to talk about. But before we get into the book itself, you know, on New Books Network, we always like to ask this question about background initially. So I wonder if you might begin by telling us just a bit about yourself, where you were born, where you attended graduate school. I always like to hear about any mentors you had, if you want to give some shout outs here. Um, and then ultimately how you came to be at the Clark. I, you know, these are stories we could talk about for the entire hour, but just briefly give us a sense of your background.
2: Um, sure. Um, well, I am a, a native New Yorker, um, to quote uh, Frankie Valley. I grew up in, in the city, and I, I think I, I did look at a lot of art um, in that context from a young age, and I think that had quite an impact on me. Mm-hmm. Then I went to Columbia University um, and became an art history major there. And, you know, it was a really incredible department, incredibly breadth and depth in, in different fields, which, you know... Had I been a more strategic and intelligent student, I would have taken advantage of in a more systematic way. I, I, you know, as one does, you put together your intellectual trajectory in a sort of piecemeal way as an undergraduate, but I, you know, the, there were the presence of kind of studies of modern art at Columbia at that time was was very strong. Rosalind Krauss was lecturing, Benjamin Buchloh was lecturing. And I think I, I sort of gravitated to modern art in that context. I took many, many lectures um, with them. And I, I I think particularly important for me at that time, even though I didn't quite recognize it. And also for this book was I, 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 I took some lectures with Jonathan Crary, his, mm-hmm. I think, relatively legendary course, The Origins of Modern Visual Culture, which had a very strong impact on me and kind of directed some of my attentions towards the 19th century. Um, When I graduated, I I was a fact checker at Art Forum for a year.
1: No way. Um, Oh, this this is an
2: interesting little tidbit. Okay. And this was just before the financial crash. So there were it, it, the magazine was massive. There were so so many ads in the magazine, and the, it was huge. It was a very big job um, fact checking, and I, I I did my best. Um, that, <laughs> um, I, I let a few errors through back then, but um, <laughs> I, I, I I then I went to graduate school in part because I think I was very exhausted by the fact checking. Although I think you know my time at Art Forum was very influential for me
1: mm-hmm. um,
2: in a lot of different ways. And I maintained some friendships from that. But but then I went to graduate school at, at Princeton um, in the Department of Art and Archaeology there. I came in thinking that I wanted to write about the phenomenon of like displaying art in converted architectural structures. Like for instance, I think I was very taken, I had gone to the Chinati Foundation and I was very, very... Um, fascinated by the fact that some of those sculptures were being displayed in a former, an internment camp for German POWs Mm -hmm. and in just converted, you know, light industrial structures. That, That was something that I thought I wanted to work with. And I came into work on that with obviously Hal Foster. And then I sort of, and I think that's sort of my continued trajectory. I tend to go backwards in time, not forwards. And I, I took a course with uh, Bridget Doherty, who's a really, really incredible scholar. She has a co-appointment in the art, art and archaeology department and in the German department at Princeton, which is also a fantastic department. And um, it was a course on psychoanalysis and art. And she's, she's an incredible interpreter, an incredible reader. You always have a sense of just how much is at stake, could be potentially at stake in any kind of cultural artifact, be it written or visual material object. Um, and I, I began to kind of work with her a great deal and, all, and she, she was my doctoral advisor. And then also I started taking courses with uh, Spiros Papa Petros, who's in the architecture department Um, and but is thinks very are historically very historiographically and his book and he had just published his book on the animation of the inorganic when I was a student and Mm. I think that also had a lot of impact on me and and this book um, is is a base rooted in my doctoral dissertation which I wrote at Princeton Mm -hmm. Um, with them and also with Hal Foster was on my committee and so, as was Bridget Alsdorf. it was it was a wonderful um place to study and I had really wonderful mentors
1: yeah I you know I was I was going to ask you as the next question of course how did you come to write Modern Art and the Remaking of Human Disposition you've kind of begun to answer it a little bit in terms of this is a I never know how to say this, an adapted dissertation, a dissertation, you know, it stemmed from a dissertation, because I think some of us who wrote books that stemmed let's go with from our dissertation it's incredible how much changes and in my case I mean barely anything from my actual dissertation ended up in my book on Russian art but it, it was such a necessary step for me to to get to figure out what I wanted the book that was going to be you know having this more public life to be and I, I want to ask you too about the the structure of the book these three chapters, three momentous, rather long chapters with an introduction and no conclusion. And I thought, oh, I wonder if this was how her dissertation was structured, or was it a more classic dissertation, four or five chapters? Some people even have six. And in working with the editors at Chicago, you reduced it down or scaled it down. Or, you know, I just wondered how, like what the transformation was. So maybe by way of answering this question, how did you come to write this particular book? You can talk a little bit more about how it stemmed from your dissertation and the structure of it.
2: I would say that the structure is completely unchanged. Hmm. Um, it's, I just like made it more better. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> um, yes, I, I just bet. like, I, I cranked, I cranked the wheels and tried to make the arguments stronger um, you know, refine things um, found some, I basically just kept pushing it, it kind of, I just didn't really stop. Um, it had the form that I wanted it to have from the beginning. Oh, um, wow. And I never, I, I, I have to be honest that I sometimes don't like conclude. I, I i don't like conclusions. <laughs> I, you know, I haven't yet gotten um, many reviews of this book and who knows, you know, I, I have no expectations that it'll, but who, but I did, I had one, one review so far, a very thoughtful review in Art in America, also remarked on the fact that it doesn't have a conclusion. And I mean, to me, I I felt that there was some form of I, I wanted the book to kind of turn in on itself and mm-hmm. and either like spin back because it's the book is a lot about circularity and the end is uh you know uh, this phrase that i take from the music the philosopher and musicologist vladimir jankilevich the prelude never finishes commencing and it's all about circularity so the idea of kind of definitive conclusion that kind of structurally i was trying to thematize the impossibility of that i also think a lot about the um you know the debussy prelude to afternoon of a fun which is the musical setting to the ballet afternoon of a fun which is the final chapter and the way that it just kind of whispers itself away. Mm -hmm. Um, I, maybe that's a huge cop-out um
1: but no, i don't think way- so i like this honesty too i think you know part of what i like about doing this podcast is getting to ask maybe more stylistic and structural yeah, questions which i of, find very interesting to discuss yeah we like we never talk about this and my book didn't have a conclusion and i think i was similarly almost kind of not morally opposed but i just was like i should i should have been able to conclude the book without needing a couple extra pages to tie all the threads together and one of the things I got hit with in peer review was this book desperately needs a conclusion to draw to, you know, and I gave in and, and didn't resist that and wrote one. And and I think my book ended up being better for it. But I, I, I don't know, there's something... Dare I say ballsy about the structure of this book with these long chapters that are so thick. I mean, now it makes complete sense why how these chapters are hearing you say you took your dissertation and you made it more better. Like got it, like totally get it now. Don't even feel like I need to ask you about this more. And and I see what you mean about, I don't know, there's something poetic about the idea that that you didn't write a conclusion. And, or follow a kind of classic first book format with shorter, more chapters, and so on and so forth. Maybe I didn't know that that was a classic first book format, I think.
2: <laughs> but, but I also think, you know, codas, tying things up neatly with a bow. Epilogues, um, I mean, yeah. I think that there, there are a lot of logical questions about where some of these both like formal and philosophical developments go um, in subsequent decades. Mm, uh,
1: yeah.
2: But I, I actually think that those questions are so massive that you can't, you know, neatly, tidily encapsulate them in a small coda. And I, I would, I think I would need to think in a much more sustained way mm. about the longer term implications of my conclusions. Yeah. So I just wanted to sort of let it, let it rest.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I'm glad I asked about it and it makes a lot of sense now. And I think those maybe even reviewers who who might be thinking of saying something or pointing that out, or, you know, I hope they would listen to this and, and have it make more sense. And, and maybe those who are writing books or thinking about translating their dissertation into books will hear these two opposing stories, me saying, I gave in and wrote one and you saying, nah, you know, I just, I did think it needed it and it didn't It didn't work for this conceptually and, you know, making a strong decision of their own along the way. I always have this problem where, you know, I want to delve into the meat of the book we've already hinted a little bit about what's contained here in me just talking about the fact that this book has three chapters. And I said in my intro, you know, kind of generally the three artists or the, yeah, the three artistic practitioners, let's say that you focus on in this book, a French uh, post-impressionist or neo-impressionist painter Georges Seurat, then of course the composer Beethoven, um, and then the final chapters about Vaclav Nijinsky and, and La Premide d'Enfant. But I I wonder, there's no way we'll ever be able to summarize this book. I would never even dare to ask you that. But I, I've thought of a new question to use as this bridge moment between me wanting to sink my teeth in and ask you really specific questions about some terms of argument and things, and giving our listeners a sense of what's in this book, because most probably haven't read it yet or, or are thinking of getting it. Or maybe they, did, you know, I don't know, maybe they read it and they're listening, you know, and, and enjoying the book even more. But might you say a little bit? about what the biggest discovery you made when writing this book was by means of kind of talking about what the book is about. Or I guess you could handle it in, in, by saying, I could ask what most surprised you about exploring postures and the posing of the body at this depth. So kind of talking about the book generally by saying your discoveries and what was surprised you as a writer and a researcher. Sure. That's a really nice question. I mean,
2: I, I, there were lots of um, micro discoveries within the individual chapters of what I would say, you know, were new, new kind of concrete things that changed the way I thought about specific works of art. I mean, I think that really happened to me with um, the object that's at the center of the first chapter in which kind of, it's a painting that's literally about the problematic that the book itself addresses, which is the problem of bodily pose. That's Mm -hmm. Seurat's painting poses. And I think there were some specific things, you know, a couple of sort of that really changed my understanding of that painting, you know, in the archive when I was, when I discovered that Seurat had copied all of his reviews by hand, his, his, his critical reviews um, and, and, and just how deeply and the, the, these news, these clipping agencies, and just how deeply artists were reading their criticism, that changed my thinking that, that felt like a discovery. And then later um, there were other discoveries around that painting that changed my thinking a great deal. For instance, the presence of the Demosthenes statue, which um, I'm on the facade of the Ecole des Beaux-Arts, which I'm arguing is kind of the, the, a point of reference for the disposition of the body of the central standing model in that painting. And previously, um, while the other po- two poses that are um, displayed in in that canvas have been given um, source source sco- sco- source objects, this one had not, and that was kind of an, a big discovery, which came as sort of a surprise to me. That was through um, com- a conversation that I had with Richard Neer, who was really not buying my argument in the, the classicist Richard Neer, who in a, in a particular context was really pushing me um, about some of my arguments about archaism and its influence on Seurat. And he was saying, this is, look at Pozo's, it's profoundly classical, Hellenistic, this central figure looks like the Demosthenes. And I sort of I thought about it and and I, I, I let it go because I didn't really have a sense of how Seurat would have had familiarity with that statue. Um, but when I was in Paris at the Ecole des Arts doing research and at that time I was, you know, a smoking student, um, I was literally sitting on that sculpture smoking and I turned around and I realized that it was on the facade of his school.
1: No, no, that is not how that came about. Oh my gosh. I love this story. I'm so glad I asked you about this. Wow. These are the kind of micro discoveries
2: that one makes as you're deeply moving forward in your inquiry into a single object and the way that an object can anchor you to make discoveries in a million directions. But I would say the bigger sort of conceptual discovery for me, or maybe not discovery, but the thing that most surprised me that I, I didn't see coming, there was a, a surprise in the degree to which I would have to become deeply versed in the history of evolutionary biology and its reception in the late 19th century, because I think I entered the project from from an intellectual historical perspective with a more of an understanding of kind of the history of of psychology and not understanding how profoundly enmeshed that was with the history of biology, Mm -hmm. even though I had studied with you know, physiological psychology, but really kind of biology and and research into animal bodies. That was the way in which those two things were enmeshed and are shown to be enmes- enmeshed kind of in the cultural imaginary through these artworks. That was not something I predicted. And I think at, a, at, an, at an even more meta level, I, I think the thing that has surprised me most and has impacted other ways in which I've been working more recently has been the importance of um, cognitive metaphor theory for some of my thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, that comes, think throughout uh, the book, I'm thinking about why it is that certain um, properties of the body and capacities of the human body, most specifically, you know, the hands capacity to grasp and the and the two feet's capacity to balance weight, why those specific corporeal capacities were so important for um, the both the conceptualization and the visualization of thought and consciousness within mm-hmm. a, a particular historical, a, a, a pretty long historical period within kind of European thought and, and visual practices. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, you know, the, the chapter on Klimt where I actually deal with certain kind of Lake, Lakoff and Johnson um, like you know, primary metaphor formulations, like um, considering is weighing knowledge is the physical contents of the head. Um, But those kind of primary metaphorical structures for organizing thought about the body, and then by extension, thought about what thought is, Mm -hmm. I didn't see that coming. Mm -hmm. And the, the material kind of led me there.
1: Yeah. Wow. That I mean, that's amazing to hear because I think the synthesis that you do of all of this material, I, I think half of my questions are are about that, the, the sort of range that you're able to cover and that gets incorporated into these arguments about objects I think in particular like the first chapter and the introduction where you're talking about a very well-known painting uh Seurat's, a Sunday on the island of uh La Grande Jatte um and 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 Pouzeus which is I think t- titled at the Barnes collection the models right now they it use is. the French titles yeah yeah because poseuse is not the word that would have been used in
2: French for models actually and I mm-hmm. think that that slippage and and that the, the oddity of that word is obviously quite important.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you you make you make a lot of it. You know, as a as a tiny question, I was going to ask about the stylistic choice of always referring to paintings by their French titles in this way. Um, and and your use of neo-impressionism as opposed to post-impressionism, which I think is in more of the textbooks and things nowadays, but strikes me as maybe more historically accurate since you're always grounded really really deeply in the the criticism of the time um, but was was that Chicago putting that on you or or did you always refer to the titles in French in that way?
2: Well, um, I think I think it was me um, and I think what I think I did. I did it differently for different things. Like the the Beethoven exhibition I referred to in English mm-hmm. and, but poseuse, obviously I referred to in French because it's an untranslatable word. And then I think um, I referred to grand jatte that way to kind of create parody with poseuse. And I believe mm. in, the, in the chapter on Afternoon of a Faun, um, I refer to it, I, I, I can't remember actually whether I refer to it in um, French or English, but I, you know, I actually am working pretty philologically within the book. I'm like kind of iconologically and philologically and the history of specific words and their, the, their semantic shifts over time has ha, was important to me mm-hmm. around certain, certain terms, specific terms, like, you know, uh, mannequin mm-hmm. or, um, or the moment when, Words like a word enters the art historical lexicon, like frontality. So, and you know, the word fawn and the way that it, the 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 way that fawn might have a specific kind of resonance with the word fetus and friend. So, I'm pretty interested in the history of language and specific words. And so, I think in that way, I'm inclined to preserve.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: At the same time, I'm pretty allergic to pretension. And I don't see myself and I'm not one of those scholars who prides that that likes to flaunt their linguistic skill. Um, So because, you know, I I struggle as much as the next person with, you know, my languages. So uh, I I, I think one has to find a balance between those competing um, imperatives.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I mean, I'm glad to hear you say that you're allergic to this sort of pretension that sometimes accrues to our field and and enters into especially maybe books with really prestigious presses like University of Chicago Press and others. And I I I feel like I'm speaking from a place that that is dual here in asking you or or prodding you in these ways. And it has to do with on one hand, really, really wanting to assign the first chapter of this book on Seurat in really basic art history classes, like the survey, because we're gonna cover a Sunday at Le Grand Jatte. And I think I just oh, really desperately, <laughs> as, as I was reading it, I was like, okay, it's long. I don't know if they're gonna go for it, if it's this long. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, there's a moment when you sort of shift from lagrange Jatte to poses, And I thought, well, maybe I could sort of, like I could separate them out and and say, try to read the whole thing, but make sure you get through at least these pages for us to discuss in class. And that made me really sensitive to the language you were using, the way that you were describing the paintings. I would say I was worried reading the introduction because it's so heady. I mean, really very complicated. And and a lot of terminology that struck me as like, oh, students, uh, undergrads are gonna really, where I am at least. And I think in a lot of places struggle with this. But boy, I loved that first chapter. Oh my gosh, I mean, you said before that someone was resistant to your interpretations of the Demosthenes statue initially. And, and I can understand that. You're oh, gonna no, get
2: that. I, no, it was it was actually um, I mean, I I'm waiting for someone to resist it. Um, you know, to, to, <laughs> to fight. Well,
1: because what it is is
2: I, we, it it's a it's a gambit and it's it's a mm-hmm. it's a it's a big interpretation resting on a gambit which is mm-hmm. Pers- which is per se factual I guess but I'm the question of intentionality and artistic intentionality I think is complex throughout my book but very um, complex and yeah book. and yeah but um, I think no I haven't as yet been really challenged on the Demosthenes attribution but I, I was but it was actually Richard Near who was challenging my lack of under of of and this was a really long time ago, la- mm-hmm. lack of careful attention to Seurat's classicism, which now mm-hmm. I, I understand Poiseu's as a repost to the Grand Jatte and a kind of um, very deliberate foregrounding of these classical citations in a, in a
1: tongue-in-cheek, yet deadly serious kind of way. hmm Yeah, sure. I... I'm glad that you said that about this question of artist intentionality being a kind of factor that keeps popping up and I think whatever resistance I had and I'm not even sure why like something about the introduction I was like oh no I don't know if I'm going to buy this argument I mean I'm being I'm being very open with you right now um and you know, I think that actually happens a lot when I read introductions because they have to do so much work and you haven't actually, you know, been able to start laying out your case using all this glorious visual analysis that you do, weaving all this criticism, secondary and primary together. I mean, these are all individual conversations that, that we could have. Um, but I was struck by by, you know, sort of like, how is this book going to be received? It struck me as very much... Yeah, this, this, this question of, I'm looking in my notes for, how you said it. Yeah, you talk at one point in the introduction about not tracing lines of causality, but elucidating structures of analogy. And I thought, oh, she is smart. Wow, that is quite a way to put it. Like I, what you're speaking to is this idea of, I think I even wrote, I have here in my notes, I wrote in the margin, very slippery. (laughs) Because I just thought, you know, good old fashioned art history would need you to somehow, quote, unquote, prove that these artists were aware of and engaging in the theories say like Darwin or, or other theories that you know that are coming through in this moment but you do something that's really different than that it's very subtle and it, it ends up being so convincing like me starting off as someone who was like I don't know if I buy this by the end of the first chapter I was like oh I, I really get this I know what she's doing now and I like it so I'm not sure what the question is in there do you want to just respond to that generally about, yeah, intentionality I mean, I, or yes. yeah, sure. what we're well, expected I, to do and how you did it instead, you know, this stuff. Well, I'm going
2: to sideline the question of intentionality for just one second and, and re- respond to the, the idea about elucidating structures of analogy. Yeah. Because um, I'm not exactly sure what I say in the, in the book, but something like that the analogies exist is not surprising and that's mm-hmm. not a book. Or it, uh, in a way, because like, yeah. we don't need to be told that there's a deep relationship between artistic production in the late 19th century and uh, psychological modernism. Uh, we know that. Mm-hmm. I think to me, the interesting part of uh, making an argument or the interesting part of what I saw the challenge to be was sort of about how one moves between in intellectual history and uh, material artifacts.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and I think that that has to do, you know, I was, I am profoundly influenced by the kind of intellectual his- history that Jonathan Crary did. And I I think what was most compelling for me about some of the work, his work is the way that he grounds intellectual, histor- intellectual history in exemplifying exemplifying objects it be it a technical object like the camera obscura or a painting like um you know manet's dans la serre in in the in the greenhouse um for me I I also have been very impacted by reading Mm -hmm. art historians who deeply engage with reception history people like I'm sure people that you do assign your students, like TJ Clark and, mm-hmm. and Michael Fried, also what he did with reception history, mm-hmm. is quite quite inspiring, I, I feel methodologically and still has a lot. of, But I, I think it's really interesting the way you can connect ideas to visual phenomena. I think so often you need hinge structures, like it might be a specific word. Um, like the word imitation that might be applied to a specific, a a contemporary critic might say even recreation is posturing or say, you know, the British way of walking, we all imitate in response to Grand Jot And that can, that actually can become a kind of connective tissue that can bridge you from something like the social theory of Gabrielle Tart who's writing, you know, les lois, the laws of imitation to the actual details of Seurat's painting, where we have a monkey, kind of the classic visual emblem of, imbit- of imitation, and you can move, you can move seamlessly from A to B to C from artifact to kind of idea in those kinds of ways by, by combining those different registers. And, mm-hmm. and for me, that's the kind of methodological thing that I find really interesting.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com.
1: Well, I, I think that's so well said. I'm gonna probably put up on my bulletin board hinge structures because I like <laughs> that so much and I had already written down to kind of ask you how you did this thing where you you just have so beautifully woven together and began the book and consistently returned to the original criticism of these things in their own time, which is something I don't think we're doing enough of. It's kind of gotten bracketed off as maybe reception history and not always necessary to deal with what the critics of the time said. But you use that, like you said, as this kind of constant connective tissue back to the things happening in the works themselves. And then you connect it again, hinging again in, in this, using this metaphor you did, to the secondary scholarship by contemporary writers like Krauss, like Crary, like Fried. I mean, this, this book is so thick with these layers. And I got to tell you, as someone who's writing constantly right now, another book, I'm so sensitive to the mechanics of writing. And I couldn't see your transitions, how you were doing them at all—they were seamless. And you know, right now I'm just so like, oh, I oh, I see she's in flip modes here and switched to another part of the painting. Yours, the density—it was—it was both challenging and wonderful at the same time. So, maybe what I'm asking is, you know, how how do you weave that amount of stuff together how do you prioritize all this that ended up in these chapters you know is there a practical method that you use that you might share with other scholars like me and students who might be listening or Is it just all in your head and it it just comes out on the page? I really hope it's not that one because I wish I could do that. Oh, believe me, there's nothing
2: in my head except (laughs) where's my telephone? What am I doing later? No, not in my head. Um, uh, I, I, I would go back to, I think the word that I think about most or I want to keep drawing on when I talk about art history and what I think it can do, or what I wish my work to do, is probably the word concreteness. I know that I um, think about concreteness a great deal, and I think when you concretely, when when you're very concretely focused, you can be a, a free ra- a free range chicken and always come home because mm-hmm. you're you're very grounded. So. I, I would focus around some very concrete motif and 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 I think importantly these can be words or specific kind of visual motifs. It might be the gesture of, a, of grasping of clasped hands. you know there's a, a, a lot of moments throughout the book where I talk about manual about prehension and grasping the, the clenched fist of Rodin's thinker, the the clenched um, fist of Max Klinger's Beethoven sculpture, the clenched hands of uh, Polyuctos' Demosthenes. Um, and and so something like clenching or hands can become a way of organizing threads that keep coming back to something very concrete. Uh, so I think that was how I did my work, and, and I think that's why I am inclined to Organize thought around specific objects. I'm mm-hmm. very drawn to arguments that unfurl from a single object. Although most of my objects are kind of really inter intertextual objects in the mm-hmm. sense that something like a ballet afternoon of a fawn is a ballet based on uh, to, to to a score that is based on another poem that is based on a myth that is told in Ovid. So mm-hmm. there's already four layers. Uh, Four layers of other objects that this, ob- that this, the object that I'm working on is condensing or Pozo's is obviously a painting that refers back to its predecessor painting mm-hmm. um, or mm-hmm. the, the Beethoven uh, frieze, which is in, in dialogue with the Beethoven sculpture from the, the Vienna Secession's Beethoven exhibition, which is in dialogue with Beethoven's ninth symphony. So the objects that I chose to work on are dense objects that can, uh, dense and self-consciously ambitious objects that can, that have enough sort of pegs that you can hang different parts of an interpretation on. And I've been asked, could you have, does this, does this argument work for any old 19th century object? Um, Is your argument kind of totalizing this is happening in body language across all, late 19th century, early 20th century production. Could you have told this story with different works? And I would say no, because a lot of the forms visible in the works that I'm talking about, like um, disarticulation of hands, lack of clear uh, relationship to a supporting ground, or even just kind of elision of feet, um, uh, lack of twisting in the torso. You can find this pretty, across a lot of different artistic practices across Europe in the late 19th century but I don't think that all of those works of art are self-consciously reflecting on what that means Mm -hmm. and what that could mean in the most ambitious sense about what we think a human being is cognitively um what what what's inside a human psyche not all objects are using those strategies in a self-conscious way and I think. In the works of art that I'm using, there is a, a very high degree of self-consciousness about the psychological, the psychological implications of body language mm-hmm. within a specific inherited visual tradition.
1: Yeah, I, I can understand both this person sort of asking you this question, which I imagine had to have frustrated you because it, I don't know, I think that was maybe what I was thinking the book was going to be when I first started. It was a kind of catalog of this, of this change that you perceive occurring. And, you know, I got out a bunch of images that I'm looking at and I thought, you know, does this change to a kind of frontality? But I very quickly realized once I was reading the meat of the book in that Seurat chapter, that that wasn't what you were driving at at all. Like you're not creating a taxonomy or a new well, binary for us to examine. What you do is is much thicker than that. And it is invested, like you said, very strategically in works like you just said, where the artist seems to quite self-consciously be pushing at these things. And it isn't a kind of arbitrary or blanket scheme. It's not about flatness. It's not, you know, it it is about that stuff, but it's about a lot more than that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why it took me time to sort of awaken to that being your actual argument. But once I did, I don't know. I've never had quite the experience I had with reading your book, where I, where I kind of started off thinking, oh, I don't buy this, and and was convinced. I mean, that's what you want a book to do. I don't know why I was resistant to it. Maybe it's, it, I thought it represents kind an of our history. Artificially seductive introduction, it sounds like. It's what? Artificially seductive? It sounds
2: like I have an, no, an insufficiently seductive introduction. <sighs>
1: I don't I you know maybe I don't ever look to an introduction of an academic press book to to be seductive like I always think they're trying to do this really heavy lifting and I hate writing them They're some of the hardest parts of the book to write I think because you have to both get across and foreground here's what's coming everybody like you said seduce get excited this is what I'm going to do but you also like don't actually get to do any of the work that you're going to do you're just foregrounding it all and laying a basis and a foundation and I don't know sometimes I think I should skip the introduction entirely and read it at the end and I bet I would get a lot more out of it by doing that than reading it first. Or you like, asked me about we all do. Sorry. No go ahead. The the
2: maybe I should have put the introduction at the end of the book actually because I I think it's a distillation of the broadest claims of what the three the three examinations add up to and and It admittedly, it is, it's, the claims are rather
1: abstract,
2: I I suppose,
1: Um, but this just blew my mind. Please be that radical scholar in your next, I have no doubt, amazing book that, I mean, these are the kinds of books that really that change our field. I'm amazed in some ways. These books are still being written because, I mean, this reminds me of books like where Michael Fried put forward, you know, this idea of facingness and Manet or absorption and theatricality. I mean, it has that flavor of like a breakthrough is being revealed to you here, and it's exciting. And and yeah, I just what a radical thing it would be to put in the book's introduction at the end. I you've just blown my mind. I mean, I. I don't know now. Now I think I should go back and read the intro and see what it reads like now that I have a sense of the larger scope.
2: I wanted to pick up on something you said about how it's not a tax. It's not trying to be a new taxonomy, and I, I obviously, I think absorption and theatricality is also. uh, It was a book that was riveting to me and one of those arguments that you can't unsee which mm-hmm. is the my, my favorite kind of argument yeah. um, unseeable um, and that ramifies in your actual experience of objects and that show you something about something that you've already looked at but mm-hmm. now perceive mm-hmm. um, that's that's what is possible
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, in the best of circumstances uh, but but just that not wanting to create a new taxonomy I think ideally, it's precisely not wanting to create a new taxonomy, but actually to understand certain taxonomic structures that have had a very important implicit role in um, shaping what uh, practitioners working in Europe actually understood European art to be, and also shaping uh, certain assumptions about what a, a, a primitive work of art might be. And I actually think it's not at all about establishing frontality as a taxonomy. I mean, in no way am I also in, I had one review that said I was influenced by Julius Longa and his concept of frontality. And, you know, uh, this is a, a grossly um, kind of racist, it, <laughs> a text that I'm uh, not at all endorsing as an influence, but rather trying mm-hmm. to understand the logic because I think his category frontality is is articulating with a degree of explicitness a logic that is implicit throughout untold numbers of both objects and pieces of writing from this period.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, funny how reviews can do can do things like that. Where you it know, also they, a, it's also you it's know, small, I but a great it, deal from yeah. the reviews. So. Yeah. I almost want to go back. I'm glad that you picked up on and, and took that idea of, you know, taxonomies, and, and I like what you said better certain taxonomic structures shaping European art. Uh, I, I would, again, Emily, I would write in the margin slippery i mean it's it's, (laughs) i you know i'm saying that as though it's a bad thing and i don't mean it as a bad thing I, i mean it as a kind of as a sophisticated compliment in a way that you know making those moves that you're making by saying it in that way as opposed to in the way that i said it that that there's power there and speaking of power and speaking of of Books that you can't unsee the way they make you see, like Michael Fried's absorption and theatricality, and and where your book sort of aligns and departs with things like that. You know, I'm glad you mentioned or maybe that I asked you in the beginning about mentors and who you studied with at Columbia and Princeton, because I can see Jonathan Crary's sort of fingerprints, like little like little ghost whispers in certain spots of this book. And I see Bridget Alsdorf a little bit, who's whose writing I love and I'm sure, you know, becomes sort of someone who lives rent free in your mind a little bit if you study with her long enough and, and others, uh, grosselin and Kraus, And I wondered have you gotten any sense from them or, you know, what do you think, maybe this is an unfair question. What do you think Michael Freed and Rosalind Krauss would think of your book? Have you heard from them? Have you ever presented this in front of them at conferences or anything? I just, no. I, I don't know them well enough to be able to be like, Oh, I bet he'll like it. Or, Ooh, I bet she's going to challenge you on this. But, you know, there is something again, really ballsy and brave about you picking up kind of where both of those two in particular left off like I think in a footnote you mentioned Fried on facing this and it's like you you took his core idea and went and pushed it way further and in way more interesting directions than he for for me maybe I shouldn't say this you know in a recording did and the same Rosalind Krauss on frontality you know we all know that that is this important kind of pivot to abstraction? So did you feel the weight of of what you're doing as you were doing it? Like, wow, I'm engaging with some of the biggest, baddest art historians that there are, and and making their ideas go in all these directions they probably never thought of. Like, was that a weight on you? Uh, I don't think so. I
2: I just I, I just felt excited by all the various the various different, I don't know how to say this. No, I guess, but maybe that's, I think weight comes with age and with knowing more. And I think I, I conceptualized this project at a relatively naive phase of my intellectual trajectory. And there's, and I think a lot of thought happens unconsciously. This is something that I always tell my students. I mean, it's part of, you know, my entire second chapter, which is about the Beethoven monument by Max Klinger. And it's all about, you know, uh, Nietzsche's, uh, Utter distaste for images of thinkers trying hard
0: mm-hmm. and
2: uh, preoccupied with uh, the gravity of their endeavor, um, and the the and the obviously making fun of the corporeal metaphors that un- under underpin such uh, the expression of this kind of the gravity of one's task. You know the the heaviness of the body, which but in any case, um, and I. I do believe that a lot of thought happens, you're not conscious of the thinking that you're doing when you're doing it, or you're not conscious of maybe what is most ambitious about your project as you're formulating it. Mm -hmm. And obviously if you were, you might be daunted. And so I think uh, allowing yourself to let your mind work in ways that are not too deliberate is important in the formulation stage of any project. But no, these scholars. I haven't heard anything of, of, from them about my book, and I would be more than delighted and honored if they would ever take the time to read it. But um, I, I, I don't know. I, I think, I think Rosalind Krauss. Though I would, I would be totally honest with you that in certain ways, this book to me feels like a turn away from her. Uh, Mode of scholarship, even which loomed very large in my my intellectual formation as a as a person discovering the field of art history, mm-hmm. um, but I think it's a more it's more archival and it's more uh, it's it's more densely filigreed in term. There's a a crystalline clarity to her readings um, that seems to me. Um, Really different from the more forest like uh, structure of my attempt to kind of build a historical uh, and to build hinge structures around objects that would support kind of large claims about them. Yeah, very um, much so. But uh, the bo- I, of course, her boldness, the clarity of her writing, her willingness to engage with actually how objects are thinking. In visual terms, is totally inspiring.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I I don't know that you you need more inspiring. I mean, I think there's a wonderful boldness to this book. Maybe this stems, like you said, from a, a naivete where you know you didn't even know you, you were taking on some this you know, super canonical work like Le Grand Jade and 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 you know super canonical artists like Klimt and. And and talking is about is really canonical? Oh, but I would say he's canonical he's because popular people, he's, he's not popular canonical. By people, yeah, he's one of these weird figures who's super well known in the what we call the general public, which I always kind of like. Ugh, I don't want to say that, but yeah, like among regular everyday people, they know Klimt. They probably can even name a Klimt, which is something most people can't do. If you ask them to name a single Picasso, they can't do, but everybody knows who Picasso is. But you're right. I don't cover Klimt in the survey. Yeah, he's a strange hinge figure in terms of him going these opposing ways. But, you know, I thought as I was reading this She's just so brave to write a new theory of modern art. Like, who do you have to be to come out with a first book? That's like, I'm going to tell you something new about modern art and modernism and and convince you. I mean, really do the work that needs to be done to to have the chutzpah to to bring us a new idea about what we're seeing and what it means and why the artists did what they did. I mean, some of the most dangerous stuff you can do, you did in this book. And I, I believe me, I have an eagle eye for reticent writing where you're saying it could be that they're doing this and perhaps Sarah is interested in it. No, there was none of that. I, The only moment, and I actually thought it was another one of these really brave moments. Um, at the end of the first chapter on Seurat, when you're talking about Puzuz, you, you do an if, then, or, thing Ooh, with your I? argument at the, at the very end and you know sometimes I feel bad about asking you guys really specific questions because I'm aware of writing a book is a long long time kind of thing and it waiting for it to get published you know it might have been a while ago since you wrote this but yeah you say if poses is read one way then the painting becomes a joke at the model's expense right if we read it this other way then it's about how the model relinquishes control to the artist to become subject to their suggestion which is getting to into all sorts of stuff you do in this chapter that i'll never be able to summarize and and talk about but i and then you say further sort of both of these potential readings are left open by this painting they coexist in tension and i was like hallelujah yes i mean i think so often i wish we would say these things i wish we would propose okay yeah it can be read this way it can be read this way they're both viable they're both existing you know neither one is right or wrong it's it's about all these things existing in the density of these works that you chose specifically because they have that quality right i think well that's what makes sarah oops New York City. <laughs> New, York <Sorry>. City.
2: <laughs> um, New York City. Um, I think that it's it's important that not every work of art in this book is like that. I would say that Sarah is ambivalent about the idea that the human being is an animal that may not have c- conscious control over all of their actions. That's the idea he's playing with. And for obvious kind of ethical, poli- political, there are all kinds of reasons why someone, you know, ego, ego all kinds of reasons why someone might have concerns about what that idea means. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he's legitimately ambivalent about it. And yeah. I think that ambivalence is, Um, condensed in this image, this potentially feminist image of uh, uh, restoring to the center of his picture uh, a naked woman presented in the pose of a political, of a famous political thinker and orator. Mm -hmm. um, Or she's in a state of hypnosis and she's basically the automaton manipulated into place by the artist to, to, as, as a joke, and, and I think you can read them both, but that's because Seurat is a really complex, intelligent, mm-hmm. sophisticated artist. I would say, you know, the, the closing image of the Beethoven frieze, where we see an image of kind of inspiration in the form of two sperm with the faces of monkeys inseminating mm-hmm. an as the new model of um, artistic inspiration. Klimt is not ambivalent about these things. Yeah, It's a celebratory image and and it's a different kind of artist. And I'm not going to try to push you with a a held intention argument there. I think nothing is held intention.
1: Yeah, I know what you mean. Well, maybe I'm interested in ambivalence in my own work right now. Mm -hmm. And there are certain art historians who I think allow or pull out like you did and describe ambivalence in cases like that one where I just I really for some reason imagine that students are going to resonate with that chapter that, that if they can get through it do the work is what I'm going to tell them read this and I'll maybe use this episode where I'll say you know you want to ask her some questions I asked her some listen to this see if you know see if you understand why she made the choices she made a little bit better now but I yeah I think you've done something really special there would be no greater honor to me than
2: the idea like isn't that the dream of like the idea of having your work assigned in a survey class is a thrilling one the idea that you would be able you know to make someone see something differently or that it's a thrilling idea and it I'm touched that you would suggest it
1: Oh, I'm going to do it, dude. The students better get ready. Anybody listen to this fall semester of 122 at the University of Louisiana, get ready to read a long chapter and probably not like it, but I'm going to make you like it. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't say that. No, they'll, they'll have all sorts of fascinating opinions, and, and I'll definitely let you know. Well, I'm looking at the time, and I'm thinking, gosh, as usual, I have a million things I wish I could ask, but I think we got to most of the, the big ones that I really wanted to, to hear what you had to say. And I want to segue now to the the traditional last question here, um, which is please tell us briefly what you're working on now. I I think you're working on something that stems from this, but I'll let let you describe it. I think
2: I'm going to continue some of the work related to Darwin's theory of sexual selection. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, it would be a book that is more it would, it would be a book that would try to reverse the structure of anchoring around objects and actually anchor around specific concepts, maybe concepts of design, hierarchy, and judgment mm-hmm. and the ways they were reformulated in the late 19th century. But I'm in that very um, fragile uh,
1: uh, early
2: spurt growth period where mm-hmm. I, better, better, less said,
1: Yeah, I understand. Well, you're generous just to give us a little bit of a tease and and hint as to what might be coming down the road. Well, I really enjoyed talking to you about your book today. I hope lots of people go and pick it up and or or get it from libraries and things and begin diving in. Emily, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss it with me today. Thank you so much. I'm totally honored to be uh,
2: speaking with you and the totally wonderful art historians that you've already interviewed, it's, uh, it's totally wonderful to be in their company.
1: Oh, well, I, I'm sure they would feel likewise, many, many of them. All right, everybody, you've been listening to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Allison Lee, and I've been talking to Emmeline Butterfield-Rosen about her new book, Modern Art and the Remaking of Human Disposition. Thanks so much for listening.